Hi, thanks for listening to the Avon Podcast. Avon is providing this podcast specifically for entertainment and educational purposes. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by Avon. The views and opinions expressed by the Avon employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the view of Avon or other affiliates. It is solely the listener's responsibility to verify the information and make their own opinions regarding the content. This podcast is not intended to replace expert advice. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the Avon Podcast. I am Daniel Burke, hosting today, and across from me is Ryan Rizvi. Hello. Hello. Happy to be here. We got Rich Walker with us. Hi, Burke. Hello. And Sadi Khan, our CEO and founder. Hello, Sadi. Excited. Yeah, this is great. Great. Happy to be here. So, icebreaker, boys. Favorite water bottle? Uh, That's easy. Anything but Dasani. (laughs) (laughs) Shots fired. Why is that? just i i don't need carbonation in my water if i wanted carbonation i'd have like san pellegrino or perrier you know does San dasani have carbonation in it, it does it does it does just a light touch of it just the perfect amount actually really mm-hmm. you're you're giving up what your favorite water bottle is right now <laughs> leaking it leaking it ahead of time rich how about you uh just random hydro flask random hydro flask no if you must, found someone no else's Hydro flask. Well, no, no. It's got to be mine. Okay. But it, brand is not relevant. <laughs> okay. Got it. Got it. Okay. But what do you fill the hydro flask with? Tap water? So, filtered um, water. Filtered water. Filtered water. Okay. Do you have a specific filtration that you like? Um, I got the um, the pure pitcher. Mm. Oh, okay. In the fridge. Okay. okay. Spoken so not like one a- in the faucet. No. Interesting. No, it's a pitcher you put in the fridge. Okay. Like the Brita, right? See, this is spoken uh, like someone who is not from California, because being being a California boy, I'm a prude when it comes to tap water and drinking that stuff. So the first thing I did when I uh, bought a home was installed a reverse osmosis system and I did it myself and I was proud about that. So nice. Oh, wow. Is that a California thing? Uh, Well, maybe it's just a Southern California thing because it rains less. And we buy all our water. I've been told. So I've been told we buy all our water from Colorado. That's right. So much so that the Colorado River actually runs dry before it hits the Gulf um, or but the Colorado ocean. should have great water. It has a bunch of mountains. It does, but we buy all of it. So it goes dry before it hits the ocean. It's, it's like a river off, that by ends. It ends in LA. Some, I think something like that, maybe. Sorry, you know. I guess what I'm saying is if we're buying all this Colorado water, yeah, you're drinking Colorado water, which uh, should be really good water. Well, it runs through the miles and miles and miles of pipes. So it picks up all these like metals and like pipes of the issue. Yes. God. Yes. Interesting. So the reverse osmosis system filters all the the hard stuff, and you're just getting H2O is the goal. So. God. Yeah. I mean, arguably, back in the day, we didn't have pipes, and we're drinking water from mountains and streams. You were drinking probably a lot of sediments and non-H2O things. Absolutely. But so it's kind of less than organic than perhaps true i don't know how many like heavy metals would be in the water back then but like you also probably have like bacterias and stuff like that like if you weren't boiling your water yeah which most people i assume for most of history do not boil their water yeah so what's your favorite one (laughs) definitely dasani all the way 100 percent. okay so why dasani that's a controversial take i'm just like that carbonation (laughs) is it really carbonated it's it's i've never noticed that it's just a subtle amount of carbonation and I think it has a little bit of electrolytes of salt touch to it. Yeah. So it's just the perfect amount. 
Perrier is just too much carbonation. Now I feel like I'm doing something. Whereas Dasani just has enough carbonation that you're like, oh, I'm feeling good about drinking this water. It tastes delicious. But at the same time, it's not like an entire experience of drinking water. You're just drinking water. If you uh, if you open the cap on like a new Dasani bottle, you'll, you'll hear, hear a like little. Yeah, mm, I, I, see, I love that sound. Really? It's like the opening of a Coke can. You know when you open that can of Coke and you like pop the tab. Yeah, that little sound. That's happiness. <laughs> that's happiness. I mean, same company, so you, they probably engineered that. <laughs> oh, absolutely, and I love them for it. I wonder if they brought in like sound engine, like sound designers, like Hollywood sound designers, to like design the water bottle opening sound kind of like oh, when you I, see a movie and you yeah. see like the thx like yeah. sound it's like yeah. the, or like dolby atmos yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. let's design this water bottle sound opening i think that's very reasonable yeah. i think if i was running a a water bottle company or a water company or any kind of drink company i would consider that like the feeling of the can in your hands the sound of the tab opening like the level of moisture that it gets around the can on a hot day when you take it out of a cool fridge. All of these things matter in that experience on a Coke. And I think Dasani is just engineered similar. If you ever start a new company one day, a beverage company, I want to be part of it. I'm just letting you know. Oh, thank you. Based off that pitch, I would love to (laughs) see. I would love to have you be part of it. Daily scrums where we're we're talking (laughs) in the morning about the texture of the condensation. So there's this whole thing that we, I went into around Coke actually and studying. So Coke is one of my probably favorite companies. Um, I think in many places in the world, it's safer to drink Coke than to drink water. Mm. Um, their distribution and logistics system is actually one of the most impressive in the world of almost any company. Um, one of the most interesting, interesting things about Coca-Cola is their partnership with McDonald's and how they engineered the width of the straw to be the perfect diameter for the carbonation that they have inside Coke. And so the McDonald's Coca-Cola is actually the perfect delivery of Coke. And so from the syrup to the temperature control to the straw width, everything is engineered for the perfect Coke experience. Wow. I, I heard that the, the tubes in the McDonald's soda machines are metal and that helps keep it like colder, or colder preserve the yeah. flavor or yeah. something like that. I didn't know about the straw. Diameter. Yeah, they, they go to extreme lengths yep. to a make tr- that Coke A true aficionado will only get Coke from McDonald's. Okay. So I have a question for the table. Uh-huh. All right. Uh, Coca-Cola used to be made with cane sugar and now it's made with corn syrup, uh-huh. right? If you want to get the cane sugar Coke, you got to get yeah, the Mexican, Mexican Coke. Coke yeah. Which is the true Coke? Well, the cane sugar Coke is probably the truer Coke. But I'm not going to lie. I kind of like the corn syrup Coke because I've drank it so much. I feel like I've, accust- I've become accustomed to it. That's why I like the Mexican Coke so much. I'm yeah. used to the normal cane sugar Coke. So when I have the Mexican oh, Coke, it's like a special treat. You know? mm mm-hmm. I like the container of the Mexican mm, Coke. Yeah. I like the glass mm. bottle. I like the perspiration on it. I like the 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 width, the diameter of the bottle. It fits better in a hand. You can carry it. And I like the smaller, chunk of it right? when you lay it down. It's smaller. Yeah, yeah. it's narrower. What about yourself, Rich? Well, <clears throat> I like Coke Zero. Coke you cannot get that in a Mexican Coke. Yeah. yeah. I'm not a diet or reduced cow guy, but maybe that's because I'm... I mean, I, could not, I can't drink a diet Coke. But uh, I love a Coke Zero. Oh, interesting. Very different. Very different indeed. Coke Zero is much closer to Coke. Yep. Yeah. I think so too. But it has less, I mean, Diet Coke has some calories and Coke Zero has zero. That's the whole thing, right? I think Diet Coke and Coke Zero have similar amounts of low calories. They're very similar. They're just actually different taste flavors. 
Yeah. So Coke Zero was engineered to hit the same low calorie count, but tastes more like Coke. Whereas Diet Coke is kind of its own drink, actually. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh. The more you know. And my favorite water is water from my house, reverse osmosis. But Clearly, I like, yeah. Well, we knew that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I already, said, I already said it. But if I had to be <laughs> brand loyal to something, I'm going to go with Aquafina. Even though it's Aquafina. a Pepsi product. Oh, okay. Is yeah. that a Pepsi product? Yeah. Yes. That's, 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 that's Dasani's brother right there. It, well, kind yeah. of the enemy, actually. Sure, yeah. You could say that. But I don't think Dasani... I think Dasani... Or sorry. Aquafina is purified water. Okay. So, oh, Dasani might be too. That means it's yeah. been just filtered. Filtered, yeah. Could be wrong, but I don't think there's any like salt added for taste. So you get a little Isn't bit like Aquafina the a little bit carbonated though? I mean, the bottle's like pressurized, but I wouldn't yeah. say carbonated. Um, the, the flavor has a little bit more of that plasticky yeah. taste, but it's yeah. sort of like walking into a doctor's office and you smell the alcohol wipes and you're like, oh, this place is clean. clean. <laughs> That's like the same experience that I have. I buy that. I think the reason I do... I don't mind Aquafinas. Mm -hmm. um, like Dasani, I definitely explicitly prefer. Um, with Aquafinas, I don't think I like the bottle as much. Yeah. I think the yeah. bottle it's cap, so it's too wide, the, uh, too high. Yeah. The new the new mm -hmm. bottle shape, I don't like. But it's like short and stubby, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. That's the new bottle shape love. Of like this, uh, when you hold it here, like this is, uh, there's a much bigger indent, right? It's yeah. Like way mm -hmm. more curved. Yeah, yeah. I don't like that. Kirk Kirkland water, I love that. This is the Avon podcast. Uh, our goal is to bring people the lowest cost, most transparent, and most convenient form of capital that every consumer can get. That's it. And so today, um, we are here to talk about finance and all things related <laughs> in life and all that. So the first thing I wanted to bring to the table, as I think every single American knows, is that interest rates have been going up. And this affects everybody on a very practical level, um, as well as just hearing about it on the news. You're feeling it every single day. So I kind of wanted to uh, pose this to the table and see just what your guys' thoughts are on what this means for anybody listening to this right now. You know, um, I'm sure they already know a little bit, but as we focus on this every single day, I'm curious just to hear yeah. um, your thoughts. Rich, you want to go first? So I've spent my career in lending. So I have a very personal relationship with interest rates. Um, and it's important to point out, interest rates have been going up. They're high. Um, they're not as high as they've ever been. So mm -hmm. in the 70s, you know, mortgage is 17%. Uh, now they're, what, 8%. Um, and since from the Great Recession up until, what, a year ago, they were almost nothing. Right? So you got this long period of really low rates. Uh, which is, you know, just very healthy for the economy, very healthy for anybody who's looking for capital. Um, and so, you know, I think it's important to remember that rates are high and there's certain implications to having high rates. They haven't always been that high. As a matter of fact, in the in recent history, um, they've actually been historical lows. Mm -hmm. uh, and so so that's, a, that's the first thing I would keep in mind when we talk about interest rates being high is um, that we're, we're coming off a period of very low rates. Um, uh, and you know, that's important for, for lenders. It's important for savers, uh, is to, you know, keep that in perspective. That's great. Rizvi thoughts. I will, I have never, I've never had to take a loan or a mortgage. I'm mm -hmm. a young guy. So I haven't really felt the hit of interest rates, the increase in interest rates until now I'm here at Avon yeah. and it's something that we talk about every day and we think about every day. Um, so it was interesting to kind of just like be thrown into that world of like, I came in 
knowing basically having no experience with interest rates and then that's like what the company does so it's definitely been interesting experience yeah i think my my thoughts on interest rates are twofold one is I think interest rates are a component of the cost of capital for a consumer, right? So if I'm a consumer, the thing I care most about is my cost of capital, right? Um, and if you kind of think about what is the cost of capital that I pay as a consumer or anyone pays, the cost of capital is the cost of risk of that capital plus the risk-free rate of that capital plus the cost of the transaction to happen between the consumer and the lender. And only one of those pieces is what we kind of like talk about as the kind of quote unquote interest rate, which is the cost of risk-free capital, right? And so that going up obviously increases the cost of capital, but we should also think about the other two components, right? Which is the cost of that transaction of borrowing and the, and, and the other piece is the cost of that risk to the consumer. And so I think for Avon, for example, we are very much focused on the cost of the transaction and the cost of that risk and reducing those two components down um, and being somewhat agnostic to the cost of the underlying risk-free rate of capital by the very nature of the product that we built, which is a low-risk product, uh, which is transactionally very efficient. Um, and then in terms of like the, the second component of the question is just like, you know, how what I think about just interest rates in general, I think I really echo Rich your comments about, yeah, the, the interest rates are high, they're higher than, you know, probably rate most people have seen in the last decade or two, maybe two decades roughly, mm -hmm. give or take. Before that, it was higher, actually. Um, and there's a kind of a short-term implication to it, and there's like a long-term discussion. The sh in the short term, obviously, kind of like the inflation fight is like the, the great fight of the decade, if you will. And I think we're frankly actually doing like a reasonable job at it by and large. Sure, there's like some, you know, bumps and hiccups we'll have on a monthly or quarterly basis. But I think we've actually done a better job than I think most people expected. Um, although to be fair, I think most people's expectations were, were pretty low. I think especially after the kind of, what was it called? What was the phrase? The temporary inflation or the, what was that phrase that we were throwing around? Or Janet Yellen was throwing around? Or what, when? Transitioning, yeah. transitory, transitory, transitory okay. inflation. Transitory that was the term. Do you remember that? Which no. is like all of the news. It was like, well, inflation is transitory. And I think like everyone kind of thought of it as like, oh, in a month or two, it'll be gone. And it was like, no, in a year or two, it might be gone. Um, so I think interest rates going up was unfortunately necessary, I think, to manage inflation, which is um, like very dangerous for society, for, for especially for people who are less well off where they don't have assets that are kind of increasing in value with inflation. So I think that's a good thing that we're fighting it. Um, but obviously it adds pressure to many transactions that are that require lending, like mortgages and things like that. I'm gonna ask a very simplistic question. Mm -hmm. um, so this is both for me to understand and maybe, sure. maybe someone else out there has the same question. Um, is the interest rate being raised as simple as just this is, uh, you know, this current like, administration's opinion on how best to fight inflation or is there more to it i know there's you know we have uh the cost of oil can rise because of yeah. like things happening overseas and stuff like that but is it is it really like there are people hands on the wheel making this happen or is it um almost like just natural it's just sort of like a combination of so many things it's just kind of like the ebb and flow of economics and society that's a great question actually um i don't know the full answer um, to answer some sub part of your question, and I think Rich and, and others, you guys should chime in. 
Um, so inflation is driven by many things, some of which, you know, some of those inputs we control, uh, many of those inputs we don't. Like, you know, if there's a war that breaks out and the cost of oil goes up and it drives the cost of energy, that can have downstream effects on the cost of everything, right? And it will appear as if it's an inflationary pressure, right? Um, in terms of what the Federal Reserve can do, they really have one primary tool, which is interest rates. So they can increase interest rates and they can decrease interest rates, interest rates. And their mandate is fairly simple. Their mandate is we want inflation to be at this target and we want unemployment to be at that target. And they are using interest rate as kind of like the, the steering wheel to manage this two constraints that they're constantly playing with. But that is the only input they really can control. And so that tends to be like the only input that they do control because they can control anything else. Is it is it a first resort or is it a last resort? Like how? Um, interest rate is the only resort. So there are no other resorts yeah. that the Federal Reserve has. Broadly, the, the country or, or the nation state has other resorts, mm -hmm. other tools that they can use. You know, we can like release reserves for oil. We can go to war. We can pass a... Uh, a bill to stimulate the economy. We have these other things that one can do, but the Federal Reserve specifically has one tool, which is the increase or decrease of interest rates. I don't know if Rich. And so, um, I don't, you know, as a lender, like I'm, I'm personally uh, like low rates, but mm -hmm. I will say that uh, inflation is insidious. And so, you know, we have some inflation now. Higher inflation is really painful. And so, the Fed's got to step on and do what they need to do to keep inflation under control. Now, you know, we could argue about whether they've gone too far or they need to go further. Uh, a lot of that has to, you know, there's a wait and see approach to that. But uh, uh, inflation is definitely worth fighting. Yeah. And Saudi, one of the first things we ever spoke about when I started working here was about how fundamentally important of a problem this is to spend or to focus our efforts on and how it's a, it is a worthwhile problem, you know, not just for us to succeed, but just for people to have better lives, you know, lives better spent. Can you tell me a little bit about your motivation and everything going into that? Yeah, totally. I think that's a great question. So if you, if you were to kind of step back and think about what are the problems in society that are worth working on that are almost, almost non-controversial, um, there are really two that you kind of boil down to always, I think consistently. In every single society, in every kind of subclass or subgroup of people, one is making people healthier. And the second is helping people be able to have, you know, a wealthier life. And so these two things, almost everyone can agree is like better. If you can help people save money or make more money, or you can help people be healthier and reduce their incidence of disease and all-cause mortality, you are generally doing something that helps humans in almost every slice of society, right? And everyone can agree to that. So in terms of, you know, if you kind of boil it down to like, okay, how do you help people be financially better off than they were before? Um, and they would be if you didn't exist, then I think you kind of have to work on effectively the cost and convenience of capital. And really capital is is largely a commodity, right? It's it's a, it's like the most commodity unit form factor. And so really the thing to work on is the cost of it. And, you know, I always go back to what is the cost of capital? The cost of capital is the cost of risk. It's the cost of the risk-free rate of capital. 
plus the cost of the transaction. And you know, the cost of the risk-free rate is always going to be determined by things that are really hard to control as a company. But you can control the cost of the transaction and you can control the cost of, of the risk by being more accurate at assessing that risk for a given consumer. Tell me about sort of the trickle down effect. You know, somebody has, let's say they're borrowing against a 25% interest rate yeah. on an unsecured credit card, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not just talking about the AVEN card. Let's say somebody gets a loan or they have a traditional HELOC or they have an AVEN card, whatever it is. And then all of a sudden they're borrowing at 10%. Yeah, walk through, walk me through a little bit the different areas uh, that you might expect, obviously, to see a big change in, and then some areas that might be a little bit more surprising, where you could actually yeah. feel the tangible ramifications of a lower interest rate. One of the most surprising things that I discovered when I started looking into consumer finance in the United States was that there is over a trillion dollars of unsecured credit card debt in the United States. That's at you know a twenty to twenty five percent interest rate which is hundreds of billions of dollars being spent on interest payments by consumers in the US. And that 75% of it, $750 billion of that $1 trillion is actually in prime and super prime consumers. It's not in the super low FICO scores. It's not in the super low income brackets. It's actually in prime and, and super prime consumers, which is very surprising to myself, frankly, to many investors um, of AVEN um, and to many folks in general. Most people have this kind of psychological bias that, that they think that there is some set of people who are borrowing on their credit cards and that they're somehow you know, lower FICO or lower income. And that's just simply not true. It's actually a huge amount of the US population. 70, 65 to 70% of US homeowners are revolving on their credit card debt at some point in the year. These are homeowners. They have home equity. They have access to much lower cost of capital but because of the convenience of an unsecured credit card or an unsecured personal loan, they're borrowing on that. So today in the United States, there's 50 million homeowners who are revolving on their unsecured credit card and their unsecured personal loans. And they're carrying a total balance of over $450 billion right now in the United States. It's kind of bananas, actually. Yeah, nobody gets a credit card thinking they're going to revolve on it. Yeah. But most of them do. Most of them do. 70% of them do. And so we can live in like this theoretical world where people don't revolve on their credit cards and try to reduce the revolving rate on the credit cards. Or we can simply work on the problem at hand, which is how do you reduce that cost of capital so that revolving on their credit card is not a bad thing. It's an effective thing. It's an efficient thing. It's a, it's a thing that can be done in certain cases responsibly and well to, to manage a particular lifestyle. It's almost like a safety net, right? Because yeah. people people um, might naturally, like you said, if there's this like flow of seventy five or seventy percent of people that you know revolve on their credit cards, yeah, it's almost like okay, that's within their power yeah. to decide. More in in most cases, I'd say. Um, but then having that lower interest rate helps you, shall I say, fight like interest, get out yeah. of that hole quicker. If that's something, that's that, right. yeah, and and do it in an effective way. I think there's like a in my mind, there's like a very big difference between borrowing at 25%, 50%, 35% interest rates, which, you know, like if you look at subprime and, and even prime credit cards, like an American Express Platinum card, which is one of the highest end credit cards most consumers will have access to, is at a 25.99% interest rate the last time I checked. I think it's actually higher than that now. Um, in fact, I would argue many people who have an American Express Platinum card 
they don't actually know their interest rate. If you were to ask them, what's your interest rate? I don't think they'll be able to tell you. Um, well, they'd say, oh, it doesn't have an interest rate. It's an yeah. Amex. It's an Amex. It has a charge. It's a charge yeah, card. It's a charge card. Like, no, that yeah. thing definitely has an interest rate, and it's a bloody high interest rate. You're paying a high fee too. You're paying like what five hundred, six hundred, five hundred, six hundred dollars. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's quite expensive actually, um, and there's a very big difference between like revolving at a twenty five percent interest rate and revolving at like say a seven point nine nine interest rate. Even today, like that seems high in in like you know in the last decade or two. Um, but if you look at like you know variable rates, if you if you're looking revolving at like single digit interest rates, it's it's a very different ballgame. I don't think they're the same thing. Amex Platinum annual fee six hundred and ninety five dollars a year, mm -hmm. and the APR is uh, the high end is twenty nine point two four percent. Yeah, wow. that's rough. That's rough. That's almost thirty percent interest rate. Yeah, you're paying a third of the amount that you borrowed in one year. In three years you're paying your whole amount. Yeah. That's like that's, crazy. A, that's a high interest rate. I wonder how many, you know, when you're at the Amex Platinum level, like yeah. it, what the difference is between people who are, you know, carrying balances month to month versus, I don't know, more standard cards, like less elite cards. I wonder yeah, if there's a meaningful difference. Um, I do think um, it's probably less about the card itself. Like Amex is, you know, appeals more to transactors. So they tend to appeal more to transactors, but... The reality is almost every credit card in the world, their business model yeah. is based on revolving balance. Right. Like there's a reason why that interest rate is 29%. It's because they are making that. If yep. they weren't making any money on interest rate, they wouldn't be charging that high of an interest rate. Yeah, they're called transolvers, right? Yeah. They transact and revolve. I want to I want to hear I want to hear a little bit more from you actually on on that rich. It sounds like you. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about transolvers. So, you know, I said earlier when um, nobody gets a credit card thinking they're going to revolve, right? That's, it's an aspirational product. Uh, and so, um, you know, the, and the credit, but like Saudi said, the credit card companies don't make any money unless you borrow money from them, right? It's a lending tool. So you borrow money and you pay interest. You know, something Saudi brought up earlier, you know, but borrowing money in a credit card is not necessarily a bad thing. Now at 30%, it's not really a great move, but you know, when rates are low, sometimes that's a smart move. So it's, it's not like borrowing against your credit card is always a bad thing. Uh, it's just, you got to manage the interest rate. Uh, and at, at times like this, when the interest rates are high, everybody's rate is high. It's not a real good idea. Um, but, uh, you, you know, uh, the credit card companies, you know, they make their money on the revolve, right? So they, they, you know, you get brought in as a transactor, uh, and then some folks will revolve every now and then some folks will slip into revolving. Um, but you know, that's, that's what a transolver is. There's kind of like a flywheel there, right? Like interest rates and inflation is going up, which is putting more pressure on people financially. So they probably need more money and they're getting it at a really high interest rate, right? Yeah. And that's just going to cause a cycle of. It's a, it's really a rough cycle actually. Yeah. And so I think the best way to kind of like interact with that cycle or break that cycle is a reduce your expenses as yeah. much as you can. Um, so you reduce the amount you're revolving and then B, find the lowest cost of capital for you. Like that's the number one thing you should be doing is like, if I am revolving, what is the best way for me to either pay down this debt or make it easier to pay down this debt? The reality is when you're borrowing at 30%, it's really hard to pay down your debt very quickly because you're spending 30% of your cash is outgoing to just playing the interest. You're not paying down principal, yeah. right? And so moving to, let's say, 
a 799 or 8% interest rate or a 10% interest rate is will help you pay down your debt way faster than paying it down on a 30% interest rate. So I think like the first order of business is to reduce your expenses so you reduce your amount of debt load. And very quickly then is to move as quickly as possible to a lower interest rate product as fast as possible. Right, and that's what the HELOC is, right? So the, the HELOC is a, is a way to get low cost capital in general. Yeah. S secured yeah. loan, right? Just like your mortgage. Your mortgage is secured against the house, home equity loans are secured against the house. What, what I thought, you know, getting back to uh, Avon and sort of what attracted you to Avon, Here's my take on it. Mm -hmm. the, the, traditionally, the HELOC, the, the HELOC has, has kind of been a little bastard child. It's, it's got the sort of poor profitability metrics of uh, credit cards, and then it's got the high cost of a mortgage. So you're spending as much money as you would spend to book a mortgage, uh, and you're getting all the expenses of managing a credit card. So uh, a lot of banks don't do it. That's why you don't see a big home equity push. Um, what Avon was able to do, what attracted me to the company was the technology that went into place to bring the cost down. So it's a very inexpensive product to get. It's zero to get. Right? That's that's the push. Uh, it's you know, Saudi talked about the three parts of the cost capital. Bringing that down as low as we've been able to bring it down saves money for consumers. It enables them to come and get the low rate and take that thirty percent down to the seven nine. Yep. Yep. So, Rich, you you were at Capital One in your career. Um, how long were you, how long were you there for? Uh, Fifteen total, two different stints. Fifteen years. Okay. So, Capital One, um, obviously a you know big, big, big credit card brand. What's um, in your wallet? Yes, exactly. Uh, Avon, we view ourselves first and foremost as a technology company, right? So, when it comes to tackling this problem and sort of reinventing. A product that's been in existence for a long time, like HELOCs have been around. Where do you see the difference in terms of approaching, tackling a problem from a technologist perspective versus a finance perspective? So when you look at fintechs and banks, right, just sort of in general, the, the great thing about a fintech is that it gets to build everything from scratch, right? So it's all built from the customer back. Everything we've done at Avon has been built that way. Everything Saudi's brought to the table has been like that. Start with the consumer, work backwards with technology to solve the consumer's problem. It's just harder for banks to do that. It's not a knock on Capital One or Chase or Wells or Citi. Uh, it's just that they've got legacy businesses. Most likely your account, your Citibank account, no, no offense to Citi, but it's probably being run off a of mainframe. That's just the nature of their business. Uh, and all big banks are like that. It's all legacy. Uh, and so it's, it's just tougher for them to innovate and evolve. And the motivation must be less there as well, because like you said, uh, it's not a big push. Big banks are not really pushing HELOCs. Um, I think now might be a little bit of a different story, seeing as uh, interest rates were in like the 2% range, and now they're much higher, but we're feeling the squeeze of inflation. So some of the customers, the Avon customers that I've interviewed, they've managed to use their Avon card to keep their 2% mortgage rate, which is awesome to see. Mm -hmm. um, I forget where I was going with this question. Well, I think there's two parts to kind of what you're talking about. Yeah. One is, you know, there is an ability question for traditional banks to build a, a great HELOC product, which is accessible, convenient, efficient. Because remember, if the if the cost of that transaction of, of giving a HELOC by a bank is very high, someone's paying for that cost. It's the consumer. 
So if your bank doesn't have sophisticated technology and it costs them thousands of dollars to to and that's to, about right thousands thousands of dollars right yeah. yeah you you know this from Capital One days and you know this from other banks that they cost them thousands of dollars to originate one of these HELOCs you're paying for it like right. you're paying for that in fees you're paying for that in an interest rate you're paying for it in some way shape or form um, and the ability for a bank to reduce that cost of producing one of those HELOCs for you as a consumer. I think it's hard, um, and I think it's hard regardless of their motivation. But I think Burke, maybe you're asking an additional question, which is like, well, how motivated are they in doing that? Because let's be very clear: for a bank, pushing you to get an unsecured credit card makes them more money. Right. So the highest, if you look at any bank's 10Ks or their annual or their quarterly financial reports, if you look at each bank's business unit. The most profitable business unit of any bank is actually their unsecured credit card business. They make more money on an unsecured credit card than they do on every other part of their business. Wow. It's the most profitable business unit. Wow. That's crazy. And, and what's nuts too is that traditional HELOCs um, end up excluding a lot of people too. They do. That's right. Yeah. The, the inefficiencies, um, again, another customer I was interviewing, they said their house was actually worth too little for a big bank to deal with them. Huh. Yeah. That the, the, the valuation of their home, um, you know, with all the hoops you have to jump through in terms of appraisers, notary, all the expenses that go into a HELOC, yeah. they wouldn't even bother with them, which is crazy. Yeah. Which is nuts. And I think so, if you look at it, traditionally, uh, if you couldn't look at, if you're a consumer and you need to borrow some amount of money, right? Um, traditionally, you wouldn't go to a HELOC because a HELOC was similar to a mortgage in, in how much it costs and how much time it takes. And so what would happen is a, a bank would literally tell you, if you're borrowing less than $40,000, don't bother with a HELOC. Get a personal loan or put it on like some high-end you know, unsecured credit card. And this is, this is not just because you're low FICO or low income. This is just you're not borrowing enough money for it to be worth the bank's time to reduce your cost of cap mm. because of the transactional costs associated with, with the HELOC. And so even to this day, actually, if you go to like Bankrate or any of these websites that you know serve different HELOCs, almost nobody will try and give you a HELOC below $20,000, yeah. $25,000. If you actually put like the amount that you want to borrow to be less than $25,000, you'll see everyone drop off. Anecdotally, I heard 50. 50? Yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah. And so to your, the customer that, you know, is now an Avon customer, yeah. um, the reason she couldn't get a bank to give it to her because the, it would cost the bank too much money for how little money they would make right. for getting a HELOC. So HELOC is the kind of, if you truly want to like stick it to the mat and pay as little as possible for your cost of capital, the HELOC is the best damn product in the world. And what's cool too is it's just a smarter product yeah, in a way. Um, Going back to the same set of customers, uh, talking about the tangible impact of interest rates and everything like that. What was so crazy was we're, we're talking about one person with their house and their household, right? But it actually affects the entire community because yeah. you know location is such a major value in, mm -hmm. or major player in property value. This entire neighborhood was actually, because it was low valuation, they're sort of like stuck in this rut. They're yeah. stuck in this low point. And them getting an Avon card and sharing the news specifically with their neighbors. Interesting. It, it, yeah, it actually really like has the potential 
to help start driving things in a more positive direction. Absolutely. Because they said they were able to do upgrades on their house, which brings up the value of their home. Yeah. And if all their neighbors do it as well, that's going to, that's yeah. a tie. That's going to, you know, lift ride, all lift all the shit. Yep, exactly. And I think the other interesting thing you mentioned is how they were able to save even more money by not having to do a cash out refinance on their primary mortgage. So they were able to save that really low interest rate that they had by getting a HELOC and doing those home improvement projects and increasing the value of their home even further. So that's a fantastic case of finding like a pocket of people that can have a ton of value by getting a HELOC instead of trying to get a cash out refi mortgage or paying you know 30% interest rate on their American Express or some other very expensive. Absolutely. Yeah. And another customer too, um, they work in the film industry. And yeah. so they, during COVID uh, production stopped. And so there's mm -hmm. nothing, there's, they didn't do anything. Yeah. Right. Um, they work freelance gigs. So it's not like they have these salary pay stubs. So it's actually a little like harder to verify their income and everything like that. But yeah. they have this incredible asset, mm -hmm. a house in LA and they had a 2% mortgage rate. Yeah. Right. So they, they knew they were going to go back to work. Yeah. It was just a matter of time. Yeah. And the two options are give up this amazing mortgage value that you have of 2%, which is incredible, um, and refinance that and jump up into the 7th or 8th percentile or whatever, whatever it is, or turn to credit cards or a, or a personal loan, which is going to be somewhere in between. But still, it's just like, yeah, yeah it, it's it's pretty amazing. It's it's something that I had never known about before, before working here, and it's really, really cool. Did you get the pod in your backyard? Not yet. It's coming. Yeah, yeah I, got, okay. I bought one, but it's coming in, I think, in a week or two, actually. Wait, oh, okay. what kind of pod? Um, so I like got the movie a, pod? A, a, it's called no. a studio pod. It's built by the company named Autonomous that actually makes the up and down tables. Mm -hmm. And I saw this ad for it, I think on, on YouTube of they just sell this thing for like $30,000 and you just like hit a button and you, I bought it on my Amex platinum card, actually, ironically. Mm -hmm. um, and they ship it to you and they kind of put this thing up and it's basically a like a shed effectively it's a hundred square foot um in your backyard and it's designed to be like anything you want it to be it could be like an office space it could be a little oh. gym studio like a little yoga room um what is it called it's called autonomous studio pod and it's like 28 or something k um that you have to put an ac unit in but you can right. yep yep and it's got power, it's got a roof, it's got a door, it's got like windows. It's like a tiny house. And it, it is, it's effectively like a, a really low cost ADU type of thing, but it, you know, it doesn't have a kitchen or a bathroom, but effectively it's, I think it falls under shed laws. Wow. So it doesn't it, require a permit. You just drop one and you plop one in the backyard, oh my gosh. whatever you want. And you got like an office room. See that, that was actually my plan with my, so. I bought a condo last year yeah. and it has a decently sized yard. I have two, it's a three bedroom condo oh, with two kids. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was thinking, I'm like, I want to buy a shed that's going to become my home office when my daughter needs her own. Try room. this, try this autonomous pod. Well, I'll try it in the next couple of weeks. I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah. If your, it's good. Your HOA is going to love that. Oh, it's a super strict HOA too. So, but, <laughs> but it's your backyard. So backyard sheds are very difficult for anyone to kind of allow or not allow. Right. Um, and so you should be able to just drop one in and you don't need any permits because it's sub 100 square foot in California. Yeah. Um, so this is really hard to argue against it. it it's something I'm seriously considering. Cause even though it like, it's a big expense, it would probably like, it's not something that you can throw up on Zillow if we, when you're trying to sell your house, but there's no way it doesn't add property value. Totally. 
Totally. Like people would be like, this is an extra room effectively. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're like, it's a three bedroom house with an office. You're not yeah. going to put that up on the listing, but yeah. that's what it is. Oh, I mean, you could, and it's perfectly legal, by the way. Yeah. 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 It's it, all like, perfectly legal. Just plop it down. Um, oh, no, I think they come in assembly. So you oh, pay yeah. four or five K for the assembly of it. Um, but it's a, it's a really, at least on videos, it looks like a cool product. So I'm about to find out if it's a cool product or not. Um, that's and awesome. the other thing I like about it is, like, you know, I have one of the rooms in my home is is kind of my home office. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never quite feel it has the appropriate amount of isolation from the rest of the home. Yes. You know, it just doesn't yes. feel yeah. like it's, I'm not going to the office. I need like, enough of a commute. Yeah. I need like, like a 30 three, second three walk. Three steps solves it for you? Well, it's like I have to leave the house. So I don't right. have to like wear something to go out in the cold to Co- the back. Colin has that. Colin. Well, Colin lives in a compound. Sure. Which is, which he I does. Think, <laughs> but he does have the walk to work. I think he you have, have to have a walk. Yeah. You have to have like a, a psychological separation from like, I work here and I live here, at least for me to be in like my zone when I get like sharp. Because at home, I'm very different. Yeah. I'm a very different personality. Yeah, I have a co-working office. And That's I'm really smart. twice as productive right. in the office. Yeah. You, you mean like you belong to like a WeWork or something yep. like that? Okay, yep. cool. Is that just in your hometown? Yep. That's awesome. Do you, you have a home office though too, right? I do. Yeah. But much more productive. Much more productive in the co-working space. Why do you think that is? Uh, just less distraction. Because there's yeah. no distraction in my office. Yeah. It's just this tiny little room. Uh-huh. There's nothing to do but in. focus. You're zoned in. Yep. Yeah. Plus you're surrounded by people, you know, doing Everybody's the same doing thing. the same thing. It helps. Yeah. It's like floating with the current, you know, you don't have to swim. That's interesting. Yeah. So that's the thing that this office will incrementally test, right? Because... It, you know, you could, there's like two variables here. One variable is this isolation of the physical space itself. The second variable is that there's other people who are behaving the same way as you are at this point, at this place. Those are the two things an, an office gives you, right? The studio pod isolates that to only one variable. Yeah. The variable it's isolating it to is a physical space. It does not give you other people also doing the same thing in my backyard. Yeah. Um, so we'll find out if that is like valuable or not. It's a good, it's a good test. It's yeah. a good experiment. Rizvi, what's your home homework and situation like? And, and what's your kind of like ideal? Oh, I'm just working from my bedroom. I just got my desk there. But in college, if I ever needed to actually get something done, I had to go to the library. And not just the regular library that was open to like undergrads and grad students, everyone. I had to go to the law library. Because what you'd oh, see in the law library is you'd get there at like, I would sometimes have days where let's say I have class from 12 to 3. I'd get there at 10 a.m., leave at like noon, and then I'd come back at like 8 p.m. And it would, the same guy would be sitting there in the same spot reading the same book that he was reading eight hours earlier. So it would force me to, to like really lock in. Yeah, yeah. Because totally. you're like the law students are kind of looking at the undergrads being like, what are you doing in my territory? Yeah. So you have to like, you have to play, play yeah. the part. You have to act. Yeah. Yeah. When I would go to the regular library, I would go with my friends and I'd see all my buddies and we'd like dig around and do... Shit, we shouldn't have been doing in the library. I was I was on a call with Rizvi the other day, and you, you were like sitting on the floor, yeah, with your laptop like on the floor. And I was like, man, get a chair. Oh, so I was. This was last week. I was like staying at my buddy's place, and he has a bed and then a desk in his room with no chair. So I was just sitting on the floor with my laptop, just doing work. <laughs> oh, my back would hurt so bad. Going back this is to why go, he's twenty two. Yeah, <laughs> going back to the you know the law library at Stanford. Um, was it kind of like, like what was there like a, ter- you mentioned it's like territorial, right? 
Yeah, yeah, how, a little how, bit. How would you decide who gets the desk? Was it like a, you know, when you're seeing like a movie and taking place in New York and there's guys on a basketball court and like the, you know, they got to play each other for the court, like who gets to stay on? Who Is can, that, who can what be was better, like the law? What was like the Stanford version of, did you guys have like a so there study was, off? In every library, there was like the tier A spots, the yeah. tier B spots and yeah. the tier C spots. Okay. And there are the different, there's different variables. One is like, okay, do you have a view looking outside? Like, how's the lighting in this room? Is it like a shared table or is it a cubby that's your own personal space? Um, so the law library, there was like that kind of specific structure. So I was always on like the communal tables, never in like the individual pots. And it wasn't really like I couldn't, like there's some like established structure. It's just those law students are just always in there. So they always take the best real estate. You come for like 30 minutes, you're not going to get the best spot. It's the circle of life. Yeah. You respected the laws of nature and that's what nature had, had dictated for you. So what was the communal table? Was that, what ranking was that? A, B or C? Probably C. Probably C. Probably C. And then yeah. was having a view of the outside, like did that give you hope? Yeah, that'd and be that distracting. Like, yeah, I was wondering, what does that rank? No, it was, it was a nice view. You wouldn't like see people. It would just be like kind of greenery around you. Um, yeah, okay. it gives you, give you some sort of hope. And also when you the the tough part of that though is that you know when you could see when it's like getting dark mm. so you know how long you're spending in there if i really really needed to grind i would go to the law basement the stacks yeah the stacks exactly okay. no windows nothing so i'd have i'd put my phone away just have no idea of like what time it was and that would like force me to just lock in yeah we need a room like that here i we feel need, so we need in, the stacks at my home room. i yeah. have a room like that um so i have two work areas in my yeah. home one is a fully blacked out room where all the windows are blacked out. So you can't see outside. No light comes in. Um, I have like a cot in there to take naps in. That's my nap spot actually in the home. And that's my main deep workstation. Hmm. So Friday nights, Saturdays, when I respond to everyone's HPMs, that's where I'm at. Cause I'm like kind of, I have removed all stimulus mm -hmm. from my input system and I have to, I can just think about one thing and it lets me go deep dive. If I need to write like a, a big one P or like some kind of strategic analysis where I'm going through all the dashboards and looking at the different data, um, that's where I do it from. And then I have a different meeting, different like work spot in my home where I take meetings and you know, it's much more open air. There's a view, there's like a nice window into my backyard. There's a lot of sunlight comes in, like high ceiling, mm -hmm. a lot of light um near the kitchen yeah. so i can get snacks um much less productive there but it's much more kind of like friendly to zoom cameras yeah. um so yeah i think like getting an isolation spot is like super critical there's a book called deep work by cal newport um oh, it's a great book and i think it's a topic for another show because it's all about productivity and deep focus and all that stuff but um he talks about an architect that set out on a journey to design the most ideal office in terms of creativity and deep work and basically how it was shaped like a wheel with like hubs and spokes about like how the, there's a, a spontaneous creativity of people like passing each other in the halls but you need places of like uh to go be like places of recluse to go totally. dive yeah. deep and everything yeah. like that. But it, it's fascinating. We huh. should definitely talk about it, we like talk productivity about it. And, yeah. and stuff like that. So I think that's a great topic. Great topic for another show. Yeah. This has been the Avon Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If uh, you'd like to hear more, head to Avon Card on YouTube, Instagram, or Twitter. And we will talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>